out the best in others and themselves. Can you? military is desperately trying to close in on the sources behind the biggest leak in its history. A secret video of American soldiers opening what looks like indiscriminate fire in a Baghdad suburb. It looks like a video game. With permission granted, the helicopter circles the group of men waiting for a chance to shoot. Saeed Shamir manages to escape the attack, but the crew keeps circling. Yeah, we got one guy crawling around down there, but uh, yeah, we got definitely got some. Or shooting some more. Oh yeah, look at those dead bastards. Nice. Let's shoot. Thank you. Die-hard players lined up for the official midnight release of Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Call of Duty. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 is expected to sell millions of copies over the next few weeks. 722 UK stores and 10,000 US shops opened their doors overnight. I've been here for 22-ish hours now and um, yeah, it, it's, it's been crazy. I'm going to play it all tonight. Just sit up, drink some energy drinks, got some lucky charms as well. It's really addictive. After every game, you just carry on playing it. And I've played it solidly for 26 days, and I'm very close to the divorce of my wife. Gritty, visceral. Call of Duty Modern Warfare 2 is a shoot-em-up game set in the near future that casts the player as a soldier of the Western world engaged in a life-or-death struggle against Russian ultra-nationalists and Middle Eastern terrorists. Is he going to be playing this tonight or is he going straight to bed? Oh, as much as he would like to, he's going straight to bed. Oh. I know. Well, he's oh. tomorrow, but he doesn't Wednesday, so. Okay. He'll be able to play it tomorrow and Wednesday. So you're saying a lot of excitement about the game, a lot of controversy as well. It does have an 18 certificate, though, doesn't it? The controversy uh, revolves around the level three, which is basically you have to go in and participate in a massacre of civilians in an airport.
Modern Warfare 2 was released a week ago and easily entered the entertainment industry's record books. The game had the biggest launch in entertainment history for any product. It's estimated the Call of Duty franchise has taken in more than $3 billion to date, raking in more money than any single blockbuster film. interview brings you a special television series discussing the problems of survival and freedom in America. As you see it, who and what are the enemies of freedom here in the United States? First of all, that there are a number of impersonal forces which are pushing in the direction of less and less freedom. And I also think that there are a number of technological devices which anybody who wishes to use can use to accelerate this process of going away from freedom, of imposing control. Why is it that the wrong people will use these various devices and for the wrong motives? These are all instruments for obtaining power. Democracies are based on the proposition that power is very dangerous and that it's uh, extremely important not to let any one man or any one small group have too much power for too long a time. And all these uh, new devices are extremely efficient instruments for the imposition of power by small groups over larger masses. We were keeping our eye on 1984. When the year came and the prophecy didn't, thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. 
what I may call the messages of Brave New World, that it is possible uh, to make people contented with their servitude. You can provide them with endless amounts of distractions and propaganda. What these people are doing is to try to bypass the rational side of men and to appeal directly to these unconscious forces below the surface. This whole question of children, I think, is a terribly important one because the children are quite clearly much more suggestible than the average grown-up. I suppose that uh, for one reason or another all the propaganda was in the hands of one or very few agencies you would have an extraordinarily powerful force playing on these children who after all are going to grow up and be adults quite soon. You said something to the effect in your essay that the children of Europe used to be called cannon fodder and here in the United States they are television and radio fodder. You can read in the trade journals the most lyrical accounts of how necessary it is to get hold of the children because then they will be loyal brand buyers later on. You just translate this into political terms. The dictator says they will be loyal ideology buyers when they're grown up. Saeed Shmer manages to escape the attack, but the crew keeps circling. Then they find him. Maybe he has a weapon down his hand? No, no, I haven't seen one yet. He's got that guy crawling right now on the curb. After a few minutes, a van drives up, and people run to help Saeed Smear. See how we're trying to get permission to engage Come on, let us shoot. 1-8, engage. Clear. Come on. What we do? This is coming off target. Torture, the brand new oil. Death, death, death. To build hope on the ideals of a nation. Yeah, it's insane. They just might take over the world with this thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally imposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. People will come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. Should have a van in the middle of the road with about 12 to 15 bodies. Oh yeah, look at that, right through the windshield. <laughs> Ethan McCord arrived at the battle scene eight minutes after the van was shot. He carried one injured child to safety. Hey, uh, I need to get the rat, the brass to drop rats. I got a... When you arrived there yourself on foot, what did you actually see? Describe that for us if you can. When I got to the scene, I was one of the first six soldiers who were dismounted that day. Uh, the first thing I saw was about four men laying on the ground. They, they were pretty much completely destroyed. I've never seen anybody who had been shot by a 30 millimeter round before. It didn't seem real um, in a sense that it looked more like I was looking at something that would be in a, um, a bad horror movie. 
I could hear a, a small child crying. The crying was coming from the van that was shot up. I ran over to the van, got to the passenger door. The soldier that I was with turns around, started vomiting at the sight of the children and ran off, not wanting to deal with that situation or even, or even look at that. Looking inside the van, I saw a little girl about three or four years old. She had a belly wound as well as glass in her eyes and in her hair. Laying next to her was a boy approximately seven or eight years old. He had a wound to the right side of his head. Next to him in the driver's seat was a man who I assumed to be the father at the time. He was slumped over almost in a protective nature over his children and it looked like he had taken one of those 30 millimeter rounds to the chest. So I, I immediately assumed he was deceased. Oh yeah, look at that, right through the windshield. What effect did it have on you? Well, one of the first things that I thought about uh, when looking in, in the van was of my own children. I had a son who was born um, just one month prior to this incident while I was in Iraq, so I, I hadn't seen him yet. I, I was heartbroken um, seeing this. I'm still heartbroken to this day. It, it was very hard for me to justify after that day what I was doing in Iraq. Later that evening, I was in my room and I was cleaning the blood from the children off of my uniform, uh, off of my IBA, my protective gear. You know, the, the flood of emotions that I was having, I, it, it was very hard for me to, to deal with and to cope and understand uh, exactly what had happened that day. I went to the staff sergeant who was in my chain of command and um, asked him if, if I could go see mental health there on the FOB. Um, he kind of chuckled and told me to get the sand out of my vagina and uh, to suck it up and be a soldier and uh, told me that there would be repercussions if I was to go to mental health. It's viewed upon as being a malingerer and that you're not doing your job. A malingerer in the army is actually a crime. So not wanting to have to deal with the added pressure of, of somebody else looking down on me, I chose not to go to the mental health and to bottle up as much emotions as I can and, and move on with my job. What effect did that ultimately have on you? I started becoming very, very angry. I would blow up at people and yell and scream at them and even be angry with myself. I started watching a lot of movies and listening to music to try to basically escape the realities of what was going on in my own head and not dealing with my emotions and the reality of what I had seen. You started to feel personally responsible uh, for civilian deaths and other terrible things that happened in Iraq. The personal responsibility goes as far as we are a part of the system that injured these Iraqis, that have injured thousands of Iraqis. You know, we want everybody to see that, that this one video is not just an isolated incident, that these things are war. There's no difference between that day or any other day in Iraq other than that one was caught on video and the world got to see it. I know there's nothing weak, nothing passive, nothing naive in the creed and lives of Gandhi and King. But as a head of state sworn to protect and defend my nation, I cannot be guided by their examples alone. I face the world as it is and cannot stand idle in the face of threats to the American people. For make no mistake, evil does exist in the world. So yes, the instruments of war do have a role to play 
in preserving the peace. As a human being, it's our responsibility to recognize reality. Recognize the reality that we're in. Recognize reality. To recognize means that you look at a thing every way that it can be looked at until you see it and you recognize it. Or we can judge reality. And when we judge reality, once again, our ability to recognize is limited by the prejudices of our judgment. And even as we confront a vicious adversary that abides by no rules, I believe the United States of America must remain a standard bearer in the conduct of war. That is what makes us different from those whom we fight. We're uh, dealing with real human beings who are suffering and dying and being tortured and starving uh, because of policies that we are involved in. We as citizens of democratic societies are directly involved in and are responsible for. And what the media are doing is ensuring that we do not act on our responsibilities and that the interests of power are served, not the needs of the suffering people and not even the needs of the American people who would be horrified if they realized the blood that's dripping from their hands because of the way they're allowing themselves to be deluded and manipulated by the system. So part of our challenge is reconciling these two seemingly irreconcilable truths. That war is sometimes necessary. And war, at some level, is an expression of human folly. We have borne this burden not because we seek to impose our will. We have done so out of enlightened self-interest. We have been imprinted with words that neutralize the feeling that is being projected by the thought. To believe and to think. You can't do both. Either we're going to believe or we're going to think. We project electromagnetic energy when we think. So when we're thinking, energy is flowing. When we believe, we've taken that flowing energy and put it into the box. Here's energy that should be going and finding its way into the universe so that we can create solutions being put into the box of belief. I think what technologic civilization does is to suppress and erase the memory of the human being from us and turn us into citizens and turn us into race and culture and class, turn us into all of these other things that they then turn and make divisive. We're in a dimensional reality where we don't communicate as human beings, we don't identify as human beings because of the way the distortions and the imprintings have been layered and imprinted into our consciousness. Whatever all these identities and these things are, I want to speak to you as a human being. We feel through the being and we act through the human. And our intelligence, this is the thing that sets it all into motion. Everything that ever happens is by how we perceive reality is based upon our intelligence. Our intelligence. That's power. So whatever is going on, it's not about an absence of power. We have power.
It's just that we've been imprinted in a distorted way to perceive reality. We've been imprinted with trauma to perceive reality through a traumatized mentality. So we use the power of our creative intelligence to feed on ourselves. And that industrial ruling class is like mining for them. They mine the energy of the being through how they imprint the human to perceive reality. They mine the energy of the being through how they imprint the human to perceive reality. Same way they mine the oil, the same way they mine the uranium. They mine the being of the human through how they imprint our perceptional reality, how they manipulate our intelligence. And while they're mining the being part of human through how they imprint the human to perceive reality, it leaves behind poison and toxic. And this poison and toxic are the fears and the doubts and the insecurities that now become a part of our perceptional reality. And once that sets in, we participate in this reality based upon the perception of our inabilities, our fears. Our intelligence is the fuel that runs this so-called system. Stop your sighing, baby, and be happy again. Yes, and keep on smiling. Define cyberspace. Cyberspace is a metaphorical idea, uh, which is supposed to be the space where your consciousness is located when you're using uh, computer technology on the internet, for example. What images come to your mind when you think about what our lives will be like in cyberspace? The worst images are of people who are overloaded with information, which they don't know what to do with, have no sense of what is relevant and what is irrelevant. People who become information junkies. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. We created a new problem that people have never experienced before. Information glut, information meaninglessness, uh, information incoherence. I mean, if there are children starving in Somalia or any other place, it's not because of insufficient information. Literate culture is visual and detached it creates the civilized man the detribalized man the man who is not involved and the effect of the electric revolution is to create once more an involvement that is total take a seat in your stem chair and just with the power of your mind you can control your surrogate and send it out into the real world Electric circuitry is an extension of the central nervous system. The extension of any one sense displaces the other senses and alters the way we think.
the way we see the world and ourselves. When these changes are made, men change. I often wonder if this doesn't signify the end of any uh, meaningful community life. When two human beings get together and they're co-present, there is built into it a certain responsibility we have for each other. And when people are co-present in family relationships and other relationships, uh, that responsibility is there. You can't just turn off a person. Uh, on the internet, you can. And I wonder if this doesn't diminish uh, that uh, built-in human sense of responsibility we have for each other. In a technological culture, it is very easy to be swept up in the enthusiasm around all the people who adore technology and are promoting it uh, everywhere you turn. Am I using this technology or is it using me? Neural interactive simulation. There are certain things that we just need to really to look at. See, every generation has the responsibility to create the living reality and way that they're going to live with the earth. It's not right. We have the responsibility to do this. It is irresponsible when we keep ourselves chained to dark age controlling thoughts, all right, that are going to mess up the lineage of our descendants. So we have to think about certain things. So whatever this disease of aggression and violence and greed and all, whatever this disease mentality is, it lives in this life system now. It's eating up the spirit. You look at the leadership or you look at the institutions or the things that, that are held up in these esteems. None of these things seem to have any spiritual relationship to life. as humans we go back to being being human being that really means something but we live in a reality now or in a time where I would say to anyone you know protect your spirit <laughs> protect your spirit because because you're in the place where spirits get eaten